Dear listener, a short note from me, your audio editor for the correspondent Jacob Brantel. The following interview that Sanne Blau had with science writer Angela Saini was originally published in 2019 on our Dutch sister platform, De Correspondent. The occasion was the release of the Dutch translation of Saini's book, Superior. We felt it is still a very relevant and entertaining conversation, and we would like to share it with you. We hope you like it. Hi, I'm Sanne Blau, the numeracy correspondent for The Correspondent. I recently met Angela Saini, a British science journalist. I've been following her for a couple of years now, ever since I read her book, Inferior, about the science, about the differences between men and women. Back then, I was very impressed by her book. Saini's work is thorough, it's insightful, and she's a great writer. So I was very happy to hear this year that she published a new book, this time superior, uh, about the return of race science. In her book, Angela Saini shows century-old ideas that have recently come back in the mainstream. I thought, again, like with Inferior, that the book was insightful and it taught me a lot about the historical roots of ideas we see today. I recently met Angela when she visited Amsterdam, and I interviewed her in one of the canal hotels here in the city. And what follows is a tape of our conversation. I thought it was a great conversation. I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Enjoy. Okay, so thank you again <laughs> for this talk. So um, I wanted to start with a subtitle of your book, uh, The Return of Race Science. Mm. So The Return, where has it gone <laughs> and how did it come back? I can't say it really ever went away because these ideas have been with us for a long time and they never completely disappear. But I think... Um, What has returned is a certain way of thinking that harnesses scientific racism that has infiltrated politics. So I think we are seeing a resurgence, definitely. Yeah. There's no doubt. In the past, it was, for instance, eugenics was much more mainstream. Yes. And then you describe how it kind of went uh, off the radar for a while. Could you talk yeah. a bit more about well, that? Well, I think we have to remember that... Today, we think of racism as a bad thing. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a terrible thing to call someone a racist. Um, and it can be career-ending and life-ending for some people. But in the past, it wasn't that way. So race science was completely acceptable and, in fact, quite mainstream um, in the 19th century, even the early 20th century. And eugenics certainly was popular. It was fashionable, mm -hmm. um, not just in Europe, in America, uh, in Japan, you know, it was a kind of, it was seen as a utopian, scientific, rational way of improving society. Yeah. Um, what changed was the events of the Second World War, largely, although there were a lot of abuses of these ideas, obviously, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the things that were done in the name of race science include um, aspects of slavery, colonialism, genocide, before the Second World War, the Nazi program of racial hygiene really, I think, was the big wake-up call to the scientific community about the moral vacuousness of this idea, but also how scientifically it also didn't make any sense. So as the genetics of human difference started to emerge, we started to realize actually we're far more similar than we think. Yeah. And also that um, diversity in populations is a good thing, And also, uh, you know, impurity is actually unhealthy for a population. Mm -hmm. 
but also um, that you can't breed beneficial traits into people the way that you can breed a fatter cow or yeah. a redder tomato. It's just not possible to do that in when it comes to complex traits like we have. And also nature doesn't work that way. You know, it do, it's not necessarily the case that two... So, for example, eugenicists were in, obsessed with intelligence and they believe that if you have two smart people having a kid, that they, that kid will be super intelligent. Yeah. But actually it works the other way. They're less likely to be intelligent <laughs> because of regression to the mean. Yeah. So if you have two very, very bright people, their kid may be more bright than average, but they'll be more likely to be less bright than them because of regression to the yeah. mean. Because that's a statistical... Yeah, uh, and this is how this is how theory. human variation works. Yeah. And this is why very often brilliant people don't always have brilliant kids yeah. and brilliant kids emerge out of nowhere yeah. very often. Yeah. And in fact, you're more likely to get brilliant kids emerge from the middle of the, of the population, uh -huh. from the average, because that's where most people are. Yeah. So statistically, that's where you're likely to see that's them. That's just where the mass is. So, yeah. That's where the mass is. Yeah. 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 So why is it, is it possible to breed a fatter cow and not a... Smarter because you're person. looking at one particular trait. If you're yeah. breeding for just one thing mm -hmm. over generations, um, on certain things it may be possible to do that. But even then, there are aberrations. Yeah. So you can get a whole field of cows. You might get a few fatter ones, yeah. but a lot of them won't be. Yeah. And you have to keep keep breeding mm -hmm. in order to get them. And even then, you're not always guaranteed. Yeah. Now, do you want to be doing that with a human? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we necessarily want to oh, do that. No. <laughs> anyway, you can, you can see the flaws with eugenics. That yeah. wasn't the reason, obviously why people turn their back in eugenics yeah. was that it wasn't just scientifically possible. But, you know, it is a cold, dangerous, hazardous way of thinking about human mm -hmm. life. You cannot just exterminate people. Yeah. You cannot sterilize people. You can't do this. And yet, even after the Second World War, eugenics continued, sterilizations continued in some yeah. countries into yeah. the 70s. And um, I think one of the messages is, of Superior is that Even when we know that ideas are bad, even when we have concepts that are so clearly fallacious as mm. science, race science was, um, bad ideas have a long life yeah. and they can survive in society for a surprisingly long time. So I remember last year I was reading Stephen Jay Gould's book about the measuring of intelligence. Yeah. And I remember just, well, as with your book as well, being shocked about the ideas that in the 19th century and being of 20th century were around. And I was telling a friend about it and he said, well, can you really blame them? Because that was their time. It yeah. was mainstream. Like, how, how do you look at that? Like, how harshly can we judge these scientists for having these ideas? You know, I'm engaging with this right now because I've just finished filming um, a documentary series for the BBC for BBC mm -hmm. on eugenics. And this is one of the things I have to grapple with yeah. is um, do we judge... Okay, is it fair to judge people by the standards of modern day yeah. of our time, knowing that in the early 20th century, they didn't know that the Holocaust was going to happen. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that the kind of full consequences of what they, what was happening. And also that um, to be racist then is not the same as being racist now. It wasn't socially unacceptable then. And it wasn't even scientifically unacceptable then. So to some degree we can't, although I think there's two things we have to bear in mind. One, that even then, in the 19th century, early 20th century, there was there were dissenters. And even within the scientific community, there were people saying, like Alfred Russell Wallace, yeah. um, saying, this doesn't make any sense, this isn't good science, and morally it's problematic, 
we shouldn't be thinking about people in this way. Yeah. So the fact that there were people who dissented, I think, tells us that maybe some judgment is allowed of yeah. those people who yeah. did carry these ideas, some judgment. Um, the other thing is that when we judge individuals harshly, we forget how mainstream these ideas were mm -hmm. and we let everybody else off the hook. Yeah. So when we, for example, judge um, Francis Galton, mm -hmm. who where eugenics originated from, yeah. he was a racist, we know that. He was a sexist, we know that. He, you know, had these very dangerous and problematic ideas about women and about um, non-white people. But... The ideas that he had were popular among so many people. Yeah. And what excuse do they have even? You mm -hmm. know, this was mainstream thinking, uh, so mainstream that, you know, thousands of people participated in these tests, willingly allowed themselves to be measured by him. Yeah. There were politicians, thinkers, writers, Virginia Woolf, Marie Stopes, you know, people who we think of as feminist mm -hmm. icons now yeah. who were eugenicists who shared in his views. So at what point do we draw the line? So was Francis Galton bad, but they were okay? Yeah. Or are they also bad? And then are we ditching all of their work as well? So I think the problem here is that um, I'm not saying that we should forgive people in the past, but I think what we can do is remember exactly what they did and what their ideas were and the context in which they sat. And also remember that we are, none of us, immune from thinking this way. Mm -hmm. If it happened then, and why could it not happen now? Yeah. Why can we not all fall susceptible to this? It's not just the case that there is a certain type of bad person who will think this way and all the rest of us are just good people and it mm -hmm. will never happen to us. It can happen to anybody, yeah. and it has happened to anybody. Um, so I think it's important, I think that's the important thing to remember, to remember history, to read about it, mm -hmm to not sweep it under the carpet, not to forgive, but not to forget. Yeah. yeah. So, so linking into that, who is the audience for your book? Who is it intended for? I think, um, well, for me, anyone who's interested in the science of human difference, mm -hmm. um, but also um, Superior is quite a political book because it sits in the context of the rise of the far right and yeah. ethnic nationalism globally. And I think if we want to understand why these political ideas are popular again, because I think for some people they have come out of the blue, mm -hmm. you know, it has felt like suddenly yeah. we're living with quite racist things being said by mainstream politicians, yeah. incredibly incendiary ideas are suddenly acceptable again, and it feels like it just happened suddenly and we, we don't know. Yeah. How? Well, actually, there's an intellectual tradition here, yeah. and it's been simmering for hundreds of years, um, and certainly since the end of the Second World War. Yeah, could you tell a bit more about that? Because um, it basically went underground, but where? Yeah. what happened after the Second World War? Well, after the Second World War, like I said, so eugenics became unpopular. Mm -hmm. Not to say it didn't continue. It did continue in some places, but it didn't have the popularity as before. Race science moved out of biology and moved into the social sciences, the study of racism and discrimination. Yeah. So it's accepted in the 1950s, and in fact the UN enshrined this, UNESCO mm -hmm. had statements on race saying that race is a social construct, it's a yeah. fallacy. And that is the kind of orthodoxy today in biology, and if anything, genetics 
and biology have only reinforced that. They have shown that we are remarkably homogeneous as mm-hmm. a species. Yeah. In fact, we show less diversity as a species than chimpanzees. You know, we are very, yeah. very similar. Um, and that we cannot be sub- divided into subgroups, distinct genetic subgroups. Mm-hmm. We overlap massively. And these boundaries that we think of as races are actually really, really fuzzy to the point of meaninglessness. Yeah. Um, but not everybody was on board with that. So mm-hmm. the people who clung to eugenics and race science after the Second World War, and there weren't that many of them, but there were some, um, scattered all over the world, got together and they formed their own networks. They had their own journals. They had their own sources of funding from political actors who were, for instance, interested in segregation. Mm -hmm. Um, And they continued. They continued to communicate. And occasionally they would bubble up into the mainstream. So, for example, in the 1960s, there were people like the psychologist Arthur Jensen, Mm -hmm. who believed that black Americans were innately less intelligent than white Americans. There was uh, William Shockley, the physicist, Mm -hmm. who thought that black women should be sterilized in America. There was the publication of The Bell Curve in the 1990s, which um, lent very heavily on the work of these people who I've just described, Mm -hmm. who were kind of uh, remnants of the Second World War. And um, now we're seeing it again in mainstream politics to some extent, and certainly on the far right and the alt-right. Yeah. So how big is the group of scientists that are still do, studying this? Well, I have to emphasize, none of them are mainstream scientists. Yeah. There are no mainstream scientists mm-hmm. who adhere to this. If there were, then you would know about them yeah. because you know they would be claimed by the alt-right. Um, who they are are people on the very margins yeah. of academia and sometimes outside it. So there are no geneticists in this group, for instance. They tend to be political scientists, mm-hmm. economists, psychologists, yeah. people interested in intelligence research, very much marginal to the mainstream, but very active yeah. online. Yeah. Yeah. So how about someone like James Watson that you also refer to, the geneticist, yeah. who... He does, did say some yeah. quite racist things, I think. Yes, although his views are not reflected in his research, so okay. he hasn't published on any of this. So his views are essentially just lay view, expressed as lay views. Yeah. So racist views that he holds as a geneticist, but his work in genetics doesn't at all. Yeah. You know, you could read his published work. There's nothing on race science in there. So you referred to it a little bit already, what biology says about race, and you yeah. said, well, mm. there's hardly any difference to the point of it being useless to use any categories. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, because in the prologue you wrote, um, I, I, I thought this quote was very interesting, what became clear was that biology can't answer this question, at least not fully. The key to understanding the meaning of race is understanding power. So my question here is, Twofold, really, because you say um, biology can't answer the question, at least not fully. So is there any biological reality to the concept of race? Or um, This is the way I like to explain it. Um, when we say, which is what scientists say, that race is a social construct, what we mean is that where we draw boundaries is really arbitrary. Yeah. Um, So, for example, I have um, a close genetic relationship to my sisters and my son and my parents. Mm -hmm. I have a weaker one to my cousins and my 
grandparents and a weaker one still to my further extended family. And the further away you get, the weaker it gets. Um, now, traditionally, we have tended to live near family. Yeah. Not always. I mean, my parents are uh, immigrants, so we don't live near family at all. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, in the past, we tend, people tend to live near their family. And that is why, even at a community level, you might be able to see some very fuzzy, vague statistical similarities yeah. between people. Um, and in fact, you know, in certain places in the world, you can go and you can notice that difference when yeah. you move in from one village to another. Um, uh, then, on, then you get onto the state level and the country level and the continent level. And that relationship may exist, uh, but it will become fuzzier and fuzzier the big, bigger you get. When you get to the country and then continent level, it is fuzzy to the point of meaninglessness. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so fuzzy that the people within that group show far more heterogeneity than you see between the groups. Yeah. You know, I mean, orders of magnitude more heterogeneity than you see between the groups. Then it becomes perfectly possible for someone within that group to show more similarity genetically to someone outside the group than, than exactly. a random person within the group. So it really is statistical in a very, very, very fuzzy way. Yeah. So when we say social construct, where do you want to draw the lines of race? Mm -hmm. You can draw them at the family level, in which case perhaps you have more basis to be able to do that because there are genetic similarities yeah. between family. And actually, historically, this is what people used to mean when they talked about race. It used to mean family mm -hmm. or tribe, large family or a tribe. Yeah. Um, this idea that extends to entire continental level populations or span continental populations like the term white and black do yeah that is of course a social construct that's someone's deciding that that's where they want to put the boundary yeah. and it has no basis mm -hmm. hardly any basis at all if not no basis yeah. in genetics whatsoever and it's based on something it may be based on something very superficial like skin color say exactly. but even within yeah. those groups skin color will vary widely mm -hmm. You know, what you define as black or white is completely different depending on where you live. Yeah. Um, this is why people have different racial categories in different countries. Even Caucasian, mm -hmm. so this is the word we use to describe white, the polite word that we use to describe yeah. white people, it sounds scientific. Well, when Johann Blumenbach um, defined Caucasian, and if we're being precise about it, it means people from the Caucasus. Of course, uh -huh. we don't use it in that way now. We mean anyone white, white yeah. European ancestry, basically. Well, Johann Blumenbach used it to describe people from North India all the way up to Western Europe. Well, that would include me then. Yeah. That makes me Caucasian. <laughs> and this is what I mean by the arbitrariness of exactly. it. That in this definition, I would be Caucasian, but in the current definition, I wouldn't. Yeah. And those boundaries shift all the time. If you look in different countries, who was allowed to be called white and who wasn't. Mm -hmm. In America, it's only relatively recently that Italians and Greeks were considered white. Yeah. Or, you know, included within the same group. Or that um, also in America, Egyptians, no matter how you look, are considered white. <laughs> Can you believe that? Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of madness of this. This is what I what we mean when we say that race is a social construct. It really is as arbitrary as that. Yeah, yeah. And I, like, at one point you write about a study um, about the nomadic Bajau people. I hope I pronounce it right. Mm -hmm. They say they have evolved so that they can hold their breath longer underwater. Yeah. And you said 
well, could you elaborate a bit more why you mentioned that study and how it kind of fits into what you said before? Well, I think people pick on certain examples of where we see, for example, disease traits within small communities yeah. or certain qualities within s small communities as proof that race is possible, mm -hmm. that it is possible that certain groups have um, shared traits. Yeah. Um, and you do see that in very small, isolated communities sometimes with something linked to survival, I have to add. So it's not the case for things as fuzzy as psychological traits exactly. at all. Yeah. Um, it's not even true even on skin colour. Skin colour can vary hugely within communities. Mm -hmm. um, but for the Bajau, this is, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but <laughs> Bajau. Um, so this is a community that make um, their living by free diving for fish, for seafood. And um, within that community has developed this trait for being able to hold your breath underwater for a long time, longer than people outside that community mm. can. It's a very small community. This is a trait clearly linked to survival. Mm -hmm. You know, people who wouldn't be able to do this would not survive yeah. because they would die underwater, obviously. Yeah. Um, so it has evolved over time. It makes perfect sense. And it is just one trait. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make the Bajau different in any other respect. Just this one thing. Yeah. And it's clearly linked to survival. And this is what you see. Yeah. Occasionally, you see in certain communities a trait that is hard linked to survival. Mm -hmm. And this is why you also see it in diseases, like yeah. sickle cell. Yeah. Sickle cell you see in regions that are prone to malaria mm -hmm. um, because it confers the presence of the sickle cell trait confers some resistance to malaria. Um, and in the US, in, now you see it in all regions where malaria is common. That means it's not just common in parts of Africa. It's also common in other parts of the world where people don't have black skin. Mm -hmm. But in the US, it's characterized as a black condition because people, black Americans tend to be of West African ancestry uh, because, of, because of slavery. And white Americans tend to be of um, Western European ancestry it looks racialized because of the demographics. Yeah. Globally, it doesn't look racialized. Uh -huh. It happens in lots of different places with lots of different skin colors. Yeah. So it's purely a statistical phenomenon based on the demographics of the US that it looks like a racialized disease. So we have to really be careful when we think about the statistics around human difference and how we use them mm -hmm. and understand that where we do see differences, average differences, where they come from and why, and very rarely do they run along racial lines. Yeah, because I think, I don't know if I remember correctly, but you, well, you quote um, uh, David Reich mm. as well, the geneticist who I think two years ago um, published quite a controversial op-ed in the New York Times. Yeah. And he said, well, we should keep doing research about race and mm -hmm. I think if I remember correctly one of his arguments was diseases like yeah. we need to keep looking at it because maybe uh, race is somehow linked to disease and then we find better treatments yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you say to that argument well I interviewed David last year on exactly this and um, he is actually the first to say that many of our racial categories are completely nonsensical. For example, for example, Hispanic. Mm -hmm. um, there is no shared ancestry, one common ancestry among people yeah. that in America are, are defined as Hispanic. Um, but he did maintain that possibly there is more 
genetic basis for other groups mm -hmm. um, that we currently define like black Americans. Let's not say Africans, he means black Americans in, mm -hmm. specifically. This has been seized upon, his work has been seized upon by racists and anti-racists alike, which is really fascinating to see. Yeah. So the anti-racists will say, well, actually, Reich condemns racism uh, because it's not backed up by genetics and most racial categories have absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And the racists say, well, yeah, but he does say that, you know, some, we need to do more research on this. The fact is health research already includes race as a variable. Yeah. And especially in the US, medical researchers already use race as a variable. The problem is, as epidemiologists are finding there, is that it's a very poor proxy for human difference. Yeah. The example I give in the book is um, hypertension. Mm -hmm. uh, hypertension is one of the most racialized conditions in the world. And in fact, in the US, um, the first ever, and as far as I know, the only ever racially specific drug designed for marketing just to black people, uh, Bidil, mm -hmm. is for diseases that result from hypertension. And uh, in the UK, if you're under 55 and black, you can be given a different treatment than if you're under 55 and white. So your skin color makes a difference when you have hypertension in the UK and in the US. Um, and epidemiologists, um, Jay Kaufman, mm -hmm. who's based in Canada, and a medical doctor, medical researcher, Richard Cooper, who's an expert on hypertension, who's traveled all over the world to study this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, they took apart the figures. They said, let's just look at the data here, the statistics. How reliable is treatment by race? What, how good a proxy is it to assign treatment by race? And when they looked at the figures using the data, which shows differences, very small, subtle differences in response to treatment to different drugs, they found that assignment uh, for for certain drugs by race when it came to hypertension was hardly more reliable than tossing a coin. It made uh, hardly any difference. And in fact, many white patients would lose out yeah. and many black patients would lose out as a result. Um, and I think that's the subtlety that we have to appreciate here is you can use race if you want. You can use any variable you like. You can yeah. use height, you can use weight education, anything you want. But if you're going to use it, one, you have to be able to define it, mm -hmm. which people really struggle with when it yeah. comes to race for the reasons I've already given. And secondly, you have to be really sure that it works. Mm -hmm. If you're going to use it as a proxy in medicine, you have to be really sure. And we just don't have that good evidence. Even sickle cell. So here is a trait that clearly has a higher incidence in black Americans and white Americans for the reasons I've already given. But even then, when states investigated whether they should just be screening black newborns and not white newborns, mm -hmm. they found that the order of magnitude of sickle cell incidence in the general population was the same as in the black population. And so now most states screen irrespective of race. Yeah. Yeah. So there are dem demographic issues here that we have to consider. And it's so complicated because, like, in, in the U.S., of course, uh, like, African-Americans on average also have, like, lower socioeconomic yes. uh, status, which then influences health as well. So yeah. And certainly in the case of hypertension, that is the big factor. Yeah. Diet is the big factor. Mm. Um, my mum has hypertension, and I know exactly why she has it, because she adds loads of salt to her food, and yeah. she's not going to stop doing that. <laughs> and that's what it is. Yeah. It's salt. Salt intake is one of the biggest causes of hypertension. Yeah. 
One of the uh, most surprising things, I think, well, there were, there were a lot of surprising things in your book, but um, I was surprised by the financing of the research kind of um, after it went underground, after the Second World War. What are the interests of the people who finance the kind of like racist science that you describe in your book? Well, um, as I was saying earlier, there was this small cabal of scientific racists who after the war wanted to continue writing about race and stressing the importance of, as they saw it, the dangers of racial mixing, of eugenics, things like this. And they were funded, the kind of key figure in all of this is Wycliffe Draper. Mm -hmm. So he was an American textile heir, multimillionaire, who inherited a lot of money and was also deeply wedded to maintaining segregation in the United States. And for him, um, there's an, actually an excellent book just on this uh, by William Tucker, The Funding of Scientific Racism. Mm -hmm. um, and what Wycliffe Draper did was he sought out intellectuals that could give him ballast for his racist views. Um, and you see this throughout history, people wanting to justify their prejudices as not being prejudices yeah. at all, but being fact. And that's essentially what he did. He tried, he funded the Mankind Quarterly, which was their journal. Mm -hmm. And he funded these individuals to the tune of millions, right throughout from the end of the Second World War. So from the 40s or 50s, I think, all the way up to almost recent times. So his fund, his, the, called the Pioneer Fund, was funding people until relatively recently. The, the latest I know, and I dug into the finances of it, is that the fund is now empty. It was mm -hmm. emptied sometime in the last four or five years, maybe. Um, but in that time, in that 50 years or so, it has done an incredible amount of damage. And these researchers that are working on this, is this a conscious move of them thinking, okay, we are in favor of segregation, let's find facts that back it up? Yeah. Or is, does it work more subconsciously, you think? Um, I don't think it's... It's really hard to say. I mean, this is a big challenge for me as a journalist. This is why I interview these people. Yeah. I interview people on the very margins of academia who genuinely believe that races some, are different breeds that there is a dangerous in us mixing, who really believe these kind of deeply outdated, strange ideas. Um, and I want to get inside their thought process. I can't say I really did because it feels so circular, you know? Or their arguments are often, um, you know, when you ask for our scientific evidence, what they say is, well, just look around you, you know? Just look at the evidence of your own eyes. Just yeah. look at the differences that we see. And actually, that's not very scientific. It's not really good enough to just say, look around you and look at the evidence of our own eyes. That was the argument that people used in the 19th century to justify women not getting the vote. Yeah. Look around you. Women aren't doing what men are doing. Well, if you oppress women, then, frankly, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. It's not because women can't do these things. It's because they're not allowed to. Um, so I, I struggle with understanding how it could be subconscious when you're clearly resorting to such circular arguments. It can only, I think, really be conscious yeah. on your part. And almost always, 
In fact, always, it serves a certain political narrative. So in the case of the former editor of Mankind Quarterly who I interviewed, he mm -hmm. was the editor then, he's not the editor now. Um, for him, it kept coming back to immigration. You know, his view was that certain countries are innately less intelligent than other countries and that European nations and North America should not be taking immigrants from those countries. The way he phrased it, though, was interesting. Like, for example, he, he quoted Pakistan as one of these countries that he considered to be less intelligent. Yeah. And he actually phrased it not as we don't want immigrants from these countries. He was saying, wouldn't it be a shame if all the bright people left Pakistan and Pakistan would be in an even worse situation than it oh, is how now? Nice of you. <laughs> I know, how generous of you. Um, so, you know, they, they use all these kind of rhetorical tricks and tactics to kind of make an intellectual case for whatever point they're making. And they try and commandeer certain scientific arguments, although, like I said, they're very circular and very sloppy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they have to reach way back into the 19th century, you know, for their ideas and uh, ideologies. Um, I find it very difficult to believe that it's all subconscious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was, I was looking at the website of Mankind Quarterly, and it even still had, like, in the, I think it was the last issue or the one before mm -hmm. that even had studies on circumference of your head yeah. linked to intelligence. Yes. And I thought, well, to me, that was something <laughs> that I thought that was very 19th century. It is 19th um, century. This, is, this but it was still the argument. Yeah, yeah, still happens. This was the argument people used to use to um, justify women being less smart than men. Women have smaller heads, they said, so they must be less smart than men. Well, actually, people's body size and brain size uh, is, the is the big correlation here, yeah. not intelligence and brain size. And I know plenty of people with huge heads who are not as smart as plenty of people I know with small yeah. In fact, that is an idea that has been debunked for more than 100 years. To see it, still see it, written down. I just don't know how they have the audacity to even yeah. pretend that that's a legitimate scientific argument. I saw they also had a review of your book. Did yeah. you read it? I haven't read it because my internet service provider blocks the Mankind Quarterly. Oh, I, have to go yeah. to, I have to go to certain lengths to be able to access. I have the magazine. abstract. I don't know if you oh, want to, do you want well, to hear it? Or? What did they say? I'd love to know. Uh, what I, I, couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> read the whole thing because you had to uh, have, a, have a subscription. Okay. Let's see. Saini's book assails race science, which is presented as the root cause of racism in modern societies. The content of this science is either not described at all or is grossly misrepresented. The book is nevertheless valuable because it reveals the cognitive structure of one type of anti-science ideology that is influential <laughs> in modern societies. This ideology turns enlightenment philosophy on its head, claiming that science and reason create rather than challenge prejudice. So, that's what he says. I don't know what you think. Well, I do know the person who wrote that, Gerhard yes, Meisenberg, yeah, exactly. is the guy I interviewed for my book. Um, and he doesn't come across well uh, in the interview, not through any fault of mine, but through entirely through his own yeah. fault, because he just says such crazy things. Um, it's still, I don't, you know, what do I say? I've been described as anti-science, but then even the publications I write for have by this group of people have been described as anti-science, and that includes Nature, the journal. Yeah. So if you're going to call Nature, the journal, anti-science, then who, who are you <laughs> The definition of science is <laughs> Then the whole of science is anti-science. Thanks very much. Yeah. 
So, so you also quote, again, I hope I pronounce this right, Subhadra Das? Subhadra Das. Subhadra Das. And she says, um, you have biologists biologists who say uh, there is no such thing as race, we need to get over it, forget it. But then, if there is no such thing, why did you just say race, she says. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering the same, like, should, we, should we just drop the word altogether? Should we just not talk about it anymore? Um, no, because race as a social construct has immense power politically and socially now. Um, it still defines how we live. Um, it defines the treatment. It, it so viscerally defines how we live that um, black Americans have a lower life expectancy than white Americans. Yeah. This isn't genetic. This is because of racism and discrimination. And if we ignore these categories, then we overlook this systemic racism and discrimination in society. So we need the categories in order to recognize the problems that society has and fix them. Um, But I think ultimately we also have to understand them for what they are. Mm -hmm. We have to see them as social categories and not as natural categories. And this is a trap I think everyone falls into on the left and the right, yeah. is that we start to confuse these social categories with natural categories. Mm -hmm. um, I, I still get concerned that sometimes I go to conferences, I speak to health researchers and medical researchers, and they are treating these um, groups socially defined groups as though they are genetic. Yeah. Um, and it is rife. It is such a problem. And these are well-meaning researchers who genuinely want, for example, they want more diversity in their studies. Yeah. But what do you want that diversity for? It's not just, it's not actually at all to do with the fact that there are distinct groups. That can't be the reason. Mm -hmm. The reason is there is so much individual difference between us yeah. and it's scattered all over the globe that you need broad spreads of your population in order to get good, reliable results. That is not just in terms of race, in terms of, and race, I mean, race as it manifests itself in society, the, the you know, culturally, in terms of diet and lots of other things. Um, age, mm -hmm. you know, um, gender, all these things. And some, obviously, some categories have more biological validity than others, age and gender being Two, or age and sex being two, but um, we need a broad spread, then that spills into this idea that there are distinct groups. Mm -hmm. And if we were to just get a few Chinese people and a few Indian people yeah, and a few yeah. African people that we have a broad spread, well, that actually, no, because <laughs> there is so much heterogeneity within these populations, far more than there is between these populations. So actually, you just need a broad spread generally. Yeah. I know it sounds like a subtle distinction, uh -huh. but it's actually a profound one. And I think that is the problem that faces researchers at the moment, is that they're so... They use the political rhetoric of society to justify what they need to do scientifically, but they spill that out into assuming that then these groups exist in nature. Yeah. That's that's the big fallacy here. Yeah, yeah. So. So um, your previous book was Inferior, and it was about the science about the difference between men and women. Mm. Um, how does your previous book compare to this one? Like, what were the similarities but and the differences? Well, the difference is, I think, I mean, they both look at bias in science and how that operates. But the big difference is that sex difference research is completely mainstream. 
and it is done all over the world and for very good reasons because there are sex is not a construction mm -hmm. <laughs> there are there are differences between men and women between actually you know and we're even broadening those broadening those categories now and understanding the multiplicity of um sex um but these things do exist in nature these differences do exist in nature so that work needs to be done uh, there are also gender differences in terms of the product of how we are treated by society and what effect that has on us yeah. um so these things so this is a mainstream science race science is not mm. race science is just not done there are no race science labs anywhere in the world yes. <laughs> um, for understandable reasons there are no race scientists as such anywhere in the world um so in that sense it's a different beast so what i'm looking yeah. at in superior is really people uh, although i interview a lot of geneticists to find out you know how human difference really works in our bodies mm -hmm. and people who perhaps politically sit on the fence around race um a lot of the scientific racists i'm speaking to or race scientists if you want to call them that that i speak to are really outside mainstream academia yeah. so like the mankind quarterly it is not within mainstream academia at all mm -hmm. you know it sits far far outside it um and these are dangerous people these are dark and dangerous people since my book has come out i've had huge amounts of trolling from neo nazis and white supremacists i mean there was a period in the summer where every day there would be a blog post about me on white supremacist websites of come after me my family my kid which has been really difficult mm -hmm. and um they are the ones driving in part the rise of the alt right mm -hmm. so this is not just an academic question anymore this is a real dangerous spread of deliberate scientific disinformation and pseudoscience throughout the world by people with very clear political agendas who are undermining the scientific who are trying to undermine the scientific consensus and part of their tactic is um to attack mainstream geneticists which they do and also science journalists like myself. Yeah. Did you doubt writing this book like be because of these consequences? No, I just had to write it because mm. you know like I said their tactic is to silence us and make us afraid of saying anything. And as a journalist, this is my job. If mm. I don't do it, if someone doesn't do it, then we enter very dangerous territory mm. because then essentially they win because then their narrative becomes a dominant narrative then we're not getting the facts anymore so um we have to challenge um what they're trying to do we we're, we're already i fear losing when i look at what's happening in politics at the moment and we just can't let this happen we have to challenge it wherever we see it in fact i just in the summer there are very many scientists who um share these concerns prominent scientists journal editors um academics throughout the world in the summer i put out a call to for us to all to come together and talk about this issue and i'm really pleased that the royal institution in london which is one of the scientific bodies one of the oldest scientific bodies i think in the uk 
um, has agreed to partner with us and we've set up a panel to look at this problem of scientific disinformation because it's not just an issue with racism and sexism, it's also an issue with the anti-vax movement Mm -hmm. and there's a huge overlap there between the anti-vax movement and the alt-right. Because they're the same people or because Um, they're similar? It's these conspiracy theorists, you know, this kind of anti-science conspiracy theory. So they call me anti-science, but it's... Very often, they are the ones who yeah. are rejecting mainstream science. Climate change denial, of course. We know there's a huge nexus between the right and climate change denial. Mm-hmm. Um, and these aren't, like I said, these aren't debates that are limited to the fringes of the internet anymore. The UK has lost its measles-free status. Yeah. There are children who are going to die because of what is happening, because of scientific disinformation. And I'm hoping that this panel, and it is a... I'm so lucky to have on board some of the best geneticists in the world, some of the best anthropologists, policymakers, uh, editors-in-chief of some of the top journals on board. And I'm hoping between us we can come to strategies to try and combat this problem. Yeah. It's so difficult because I think for a long time, we, like me including, we, like as a journalist, I thought as long as we get the facts out and we explain them in an accessible manner... Yeah. Um, it will be fine, right? Yeah. But it doesn't work like that. So yeah. how like, how, how can we no, yeah. tackle this? I mean, disinformation is a problem that's been recognised by governments, especially with um, recent elections, you know, Russian involvement yeah. in certain elections yeah. and the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, has really made it clear that because, partly because the media landscape doesn't look the way it used to, so we don't just get our news from a few trusted sources anymore we get it from anywhere we want and everything's been flattened out the whole media landscape has been flattened out which means that uh, sometimes very not trustworthy content sits alongside trustworthy content and in fact if you are in a certain filter bubble you may never see the trustworthy content and only see the untrustworthy content because you are going out looking for it and you kind of get sucked into these rabbit holes Um, and this is has already been accepted and understood to be a huge challenge to democracy because how do you exercise democracy in a world in which people are not getting accurate information? It's almost impossible. But I think what we're yet to see, and this is something that I want to be able to do with this group that I'm working with, is put scientific disinformation within that agenda. So governments are already working on political disinformation. Mm -hmm. If we can also include scientific disinformation in that agenda, you're right, it's not just enough to put something out there because people, a lot of people will not see it. And especially the people who need to see it will Mm -hmm. not see it. Um, So we desperately need to figure out this problem because there are people who are going to die as a result. I also think it's 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 also very much linked to trust, right? Because some mm-hmm. people may see the message, but they think, oh, it's yeah. these untrustworthy media yeah. or politicians or scientists that are just, we cannot yeah. trust them, so we won't believe them. Yeah, these are the narratives so, that they've created. Yeah. I mean, just when you're reading that uh, abstract from the Mankind Quarterly, yeah. this is what they do. Mm-hmm. They kind of um, frame it as, you know, this publication is the one with the problem. This outlet is the one with the problem. I can't trust you because you work for the BBC. People have said to me, I don't trust you because you've written for The Guardian and you've, and you've worked for the BBC. And then what can, where am I supposed to go from there? Yeah. You know, it's really difficult. Um, 
the fact that they're turning their backs even on the big journals like Nature, I think is really problematic because there is nowhere else to go from mm. there yeah. for scientific facts. That's kind of the most trusted source yeah. there is. There is nothing else. And if you're turning your back on the entire establishment, if you've concocted conspiracy theories for yourself that are so elaborate that nobody can penetrate them, mm-hmm. then you have essentially been radicalised. You know, This is what radicalization looks like. Yeah. And that's how I think this needs to be treated, not as a kind of public education problem, but as a radicalization problem. Yeah. So with, like, with the climate debate, for instance, um, for a long time, I think uh, both climate skeptics and, well, the rest, <laughs> yeah. people who do believe climate change is, mm. a, is there and it's caused by humans, they were often, often given kind of a balanced representation, yeah. right? Yes. Um, and I don't know, as a journalist, I find this difficult because mm. I don't think like it should be 50-50, but <laughs> should, like, should uh, anti-vaxxers, should or race scientists, should they be heard and given a voice in the media or rather not? Like, what is... I'm also torn because like you as a journalist, I want to hear all those different points of view. And certainly in my books, that's what I've tried to do. I've I've heard every side out. Um, Now, the big question is, should we give platforms to people whose views are so marginal that they are almost incidental to the mainstream debate? Mm -hmm. Um, And there is, I think, a really good case for that. I think there was this view on the part of scientists that if we could hear all the different opinions, that people would be wise enough and sensible enough to know what was trustworthy and what wasn't trustworthy, that they would go with the scientific consensus. Um, But actually, I think people don't behave that way, not because people are stupid, but because that is not always the way we make decisions. I think it's a psychological issue, actually. Mm about how people make the decisions that they do and why. Mm -hmm. So especially with the anti-vax movement, why did people not vaccinate their children, knowing that the consequences for their children could be so severe, even death, knowing that the consequences for other children can be so severe? It feels like such a selfish thing to do as a parent. Mm -hmm. But if you have somehow convinced yourself that the risks outweigh the benefits, that you have somehow been lied to, and that the mainstream scientific community is somehow feeding you a line around these things. Um, I don't know, I'm really, I'm really torn here because my instinct is for the good of the public health to not hear from these people at all. But we, don't, the prob- we live in a world in which you can get any information you want online. And if we leave it just to shady characters on the internet to provide yeah. us with that, that information and we don't hear from these views in mainstream media, then people are going to buy into the conspiracy theory even more Mm -hmm. because they're going to think they're being silenced. So I don't know. I mean, fundamentally, I think this is a question of how we communicate uncertainty in science. The fact is there is hardly any scientific theory that can be completely, without a shadow of a doubt, disproven or proven. Mm -hmm. There is always some degree of uncertainty, usually, not always, but usually. This is why climate change denial exists within academia. 
is because there are different judgments of the state that we're in, how we got there, what is the likelihood of what's going to happen. A lot of climate change science is about predicting the future, mm -hmm. and future predictions are always yeah. difficult. Um, and this is what the climate change denial people seize on and amplify. Now, the motivations of the climate change denial people are, of course, very often political ones, that they want to you know, maintain their industries, whatever they are. Yeah. But we don't always know that. And especially if you adhere to a certain political um, side, and that side is overwhelmingly mm -hmm. anti-climate anti change or, you know, doesn't believe in man-made climate change, then as a group you might just go with the flow and think that it's all part of them, some conspiracy theory. It's really tough. It's really, really tough. I don't... It's not possible to educate people in a world in which you get whatever information you want online. Mm -hmm. And communicating uncertainty is really, really hard. Um, and we know from the past that scientists do get things wrong. Yeah. So it's very easy to buy into conspiracy theories based on that, especially when they serve your interest. So what do we do? I really don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Yeah. That's the challenge I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. So we see that how interests and own background and everything kind of influences how you perceive the facts, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is what you talked about. And how does that work for you? Because I remember uh, when I'm writing, sometimes I get blocked because I, I write about these issues as well. And I think, yeah. well, what if... What if it's me? me what if, yeah. <laughs> what if I'm getting it wrong? And mm. what if I'm the shady character here? Mm. Um, it's, it's it sometimes kind of makes you dizzy thinking about these problems because no one is objective, so yeah. neither are we, right? Yes. Um, so how do you deal with that as a writer? Um, I struggle with the same thing, and I always have to check myself. And I think the way I check myself is to always ask myself, Are you buying into another narrative? Yeah. Are you falling into a trap of just creating another narrative? And the thing is, I see other people do this um, who, who share my political opinions. Mm -hmm. So I've seen, for instance, since Inferior came out, um, there have been a number of writers and activists who, in the medical chapter in Inferior, mm -hmm. I, I write about um, the fact that women for a long time were excluded from research studies. They're not now. Clinical studies include women. Um, and that there were a few, there were found to be in the US by the FDA, a few drugs, just a handful of drugs, that women had more adverse reactions to men. Although we don't know the reasons why. It may not be because of innate sex difference. It could be because of weight and size issues. So average yeah. you know, differences, um, which would also affect smaller men, for instance, or, you know, for lots of different reasons. Um, and I've seen books, I've even seen writers cite my book as an inspiration for then writing. Mm -hmm. Or drugs that are tested in men don't work in women. That clinical studies that are carried out in men are not appropriate for women. And while there is a little truth, yeah. you know, like a kernel of, you know, we should be included women in research, that is not true. Yeah. And I've seen it a lot, and that really worries me. And I worry that, did I, was I clear enough when I was writing Inferior? Because I really did try and present that nuance. Yeah. Um, and I thought I had it clear when I was writing it, 
but did people actually get that message when they were reading it? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another science writer, Cordelia Fine, psychologist, mm-hmm. and we were just communicating, and she said to me um, that people often, uh, that advice often takes the form of the vessel it's poured into. Yeah. And I think that's one of the issues with putting information out there in the world is that sometimes people hear what they want to hear yeah, yeah. and they take only what they want to take. And as journalists, of course, we have to be careful that we're also not falling into those traps. And I worry sometimes that the care I took in writing Inferior is not necessarily the care the reader takes when they mm-hmm. read it. And that really worries me. Yeah. Because I think, we, like you say, we are all susceptible to this. So I see very well-meaning feminist writers mm-hmm. then misinterpret what I say as meaning that men and women are biologically completely different, which is the opposite of what I'm saying, or that we need a different roster of drugs for men and women, which is absolutely not what I'm saying at all. Um, There was even uh, this project, the Women's Brain Project, Mm -hmm. who tried to contact me to be involved. And I was like, there is no women's brain. There is no women's brain and men's brain. If you read my book, then you'll know that's exactly not what scientists are saying right now. So I guess, like I say... Some, that bias operates in lots of different dimensions in lots of different ways. It's not just the preserve of the right, of yeah. course. It's the yeah. preserve of all of us. I had the same trouble with my book where, you know, my message was don't trust numbers blindly. Yeah. Just find out what's behind them and think about what's, what is the interest of the person putting the number in, into the world. Yeah. And then a colleague of mine said, well, maybe you're just really helping the post-fact movement because yeah. this is exactly what they want to hear. And yeah. even though, like, I wanted to be... Like in the spectrum, right in the middle. Like, yeah. don't trust every number you see. But at one point, you know, yeah. if if it's if it's uh, produced in a scientifically, you know, correct manner, or mm. like, if if the methods are good, like at one point you can trust a number. But mm. um, and then he said, yeah, maybe you know, you're just a you. How do you call it? A useful idiot or something? Oh, no. <laughs> he was. I mean, he was challenging me, of course. But what do we do, right? Do you still write the book? I think we have to take care in how we present our findings, I suppose, uh, and take care in our work. I mean, that's the thing. I have to say, as a journalist, it's really tough when you... The more careful you are, the tougher it is. Yeah. Because it's very easy to take an extreme position and then everyone will love you on that extreme position. It's harder to take the middle ground and say, actually, you know, think about this in the round. Um, think about how bias op- can operate in one way or also in another way. Think about things in a nuanced way. And the world that we live in now, nobody wants to hear that, frankly. They want the, just the extreme positions, wherever they are. Um, and people like us, we are not listened to. <laughs> That's how it is. That's a problem that we face. Um, people want to hear extreme ideas and... Uh, real world, the real world doesn't work that way, and especially scientific information or medical information, it doesn't work that way. It's yeah. always complicated. But to say, to tell people, I've written a book, and the conclusion is it's complicated. <laughs> they don't want that. <laughs> and buy it. <laughs> so I was wondering, um, are some topics too controversial to study by science? Like, for instance, I, IQ differences uh, related to skin color. Um, Are there studies that scientists shouldn't do? There are, I personally feel, 
and I'm all for academic freedom. If you can get your work funded by a reputable funding body, if you can get it published in a reputable journal, and you can get it peer-reviewed by reputable people, then you should do whatever research you want. Feel free to do whatever you want. Um, so I don't have an issue with any kind of research. The reason that kind of research isn't done is because it sounds ridiculous, you know. It's like saying, should we research IQ differences by height, you know, yeah. or, you know, shoe size? It's as ridiculous as that. There is no reason to assume that IQ differs by skin colour. To even expect that to be a valid scientific question, I think the only reason you could possibly want to ask that question is because of the history, the political history of the world the way it is, the yeah. belief that there might be. Um, and I just think it would sound nonsensical in front of funding body. That's not to say you can try if you want. Let's yeah. <laughs> see how it goes. Go on. Go so there's no it. research that's kind of too dangerous or too... No, because people research all kinds of things, and yeah. they always have, yeah. in fact. So... Go for it if you want. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing stopping you if you really believe. I, and I'm not afraid of dangerous research at all. I think you should do it. But there are reasons that certain questions aren't asked. So, for example, why people don't ask funding bodies to investigate whether the Earth is flat. Yeah. You know, there are some questions we just don't bother asking because we feel we don't need to, need to <laughs> ask them. We answered them a couple of centuries <laughs> yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah. And I think with race, also, we answered a lot of these questions two centuries ago. So you can ask them if you want, but I don't know what you'd get out of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, both uh, inferior and superior is about classification, right? Yeah. About poop putting people in certain boxes. Mm. Um, why do we do that? <laughs> um... So I think there are some people who think that we can't help doing it, but we have to remember doing it is something that really is a product of modern Western science, mm -hmm. this idea of categorization. Um, it's not, I don't think it's, it's an inevitable thing necessarily that humans do, or I'm let, yet to see evidence that it's an inevitable thing that we do. Maybe this need to order. Mm -hmm. But certainly um, what you see at the beginning of Western science is the classification of the natural world and then that being extended to humans, yeah. yeah, and entering into that exercise. But we also have to, we always have to ask ourselves why classify and what do those classifications mean? You know, those early human classifications were quite crazy. Carl Linnaeus included, Carl Linnaeus who did a lot of the taxonomies that we use today mm -hmm. even for the natural world, And when he started categorizing humans, he included two categories for people that we know don't exist, monster-like and feral humans. <laughs> Because he hadn't met most people in the world. He hadn't traveled very much, so he just didn't know. He just guessed based on myth and folklore that these people exist. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we need, we need to ask ourselves what we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah. yeah. So at one point you say, wear your identity lightly. Mm. How how does one do that? Well, I think um, I took that actually from the work of um, not, he doesn't use this phrase, but it's been used in reference to his work, um, the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah. Mm -hmm. So he is of mixed British Ghanaian descent, white British and Ghanaian descent. And as a result, it's very difficult for people to place where he's from. Mm -hmm. They don't quite know where he's from. And his, um, in his book, The Lies That Bind, that came out um, 
I think last year. Um, he very eloquently um, explains this, not with anger or with, you know, this is my identity, why can't you just see who I am? He basically says, identity is, it shifts all the time. And this is the way I like to think about it. My identity doesn't actually belong to me. It really belongs to the people who are looking at me. Mm-hmm. And that's why it shifts all the time. It can vary so much depending yeah. on the place I'm in and the time that I'm in. Um, when I go to India, and I go there quite often, that's where my uh, parents were born, um, that is when I am the most British. People mm. see me so yeah. clearly as British when I'm there. Um, and in parts of Britain, not in London, but in parts of Britain, they see me quite clearly as Indian. Yeah. It belongs to them. And that's the way it will always be mm-hmm. because um, however much we might cling to whatever identities we have, they are and always have been to some extent arbitrary and categories vary depending on where you live, like the Caucasian one I just told you, yeah. the fact that yeah. even my Caucasianness is something that has shifted over the centuries. Um, and if we understand biological identity and even cultural and social identity for that, for that matter, as something of a cloak that we wear rather than something that's rooted in us, yeah. then I think, for me anyway, I, and I know that's not, it's not the case for anyone, perhaps I'm more comfortable in my identity, um, then I think that's a more honest and... I think that's a more honest way of thinking about identity. I know it's not easy for everyone. I'm... Mm-hmm. I, I'm quite happy in my Britishness. I consider myself British. Yeah. But I'm also happy with my Indian ancestry because I've lived in India. I know the country really well. And I know that for other people, their identities are more fraught for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And these can be quite visceral s- struggles for them. And, and to say to someone, just your identity is just a cloak that you wear, can, can feel harsh. But... Um, That's not to say that you can just change identity at the drop of a hat because, like Mm -hmm. I said, it belongs to other people and they will see you as they see you Mm -hmm. and there's not a lot you can do about that. But it also belongs to yourself, right? You talk about one friend who is part Pakistani but never Mm -hmm. really been to Pakistan and she says, well, I feel, I believe that in my blood there is something Pakistani. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, other people can label you in a certain way but you also do it yourself, right? So maybe to create a sense of belonging or... But why do we do that? Why is she not happy in her... Is she not accepting of her full Britishness? And why does she need feel the need to claim her Pakistaniness? And that's partly because when we were growing up, she's my age, um, there was a lot of racism in London. Yeah. And you couldn't claim your Britishness because, like I said, in the eyes of other people, you weren't fully British. Mm-hmm. And so if you weren't fully British in the eyes of pe- other people, then what were you? Yeah. And you have to claim another identity then because you don't fully have the one that, you're, that you should have mm-hmm. or that you were born with. Yeah. I was born British. I am fully 100% British. But if other people don't see me that way, then where do I go with that? Yeah. And how do they see me? And that's why I think people, especially ethnic minorities living in a country where they're not the majority, feel the need to attach themselves to identities in some ways that they may have no relationship whatsoever to. Yeah. You know, that have, they may never have been to the countries that their parents were from or their grandparents were from, but they feel the need to attach themselves to it 
because they are denied the identity that they do have a claim to. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, onto the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm currently writing about AI, yeah. uh, artificial intelligence, and, well, data is playing a bigger and bigger role, I think. And if we talk about categorization, mm. it's almost necessary if you use data. Mm. So do you think, like, in, also in the light of your book, like, will classification just become more and more common? Because if we use data, we somehow need to categorize people because mm. otherwise it cannot be counted or measured. Or... Yeah. I mean, we we already see that it's a problem in artificial intelligence already, mm-hmm. that we know that the... Um, The fact that society is loaded with bias also loads of data, and then the algorithms become loaded with that same bias. And there's there's actually a really good book that I'm reading, um, that I've just finished reading by a friend of mine, Robert Elliott Smith, Rage mm-hmm. Inside the Machine. Oh. So he, as a technologist, has been looking at this problem for decades. He's yeah. been working on algorithms and AI for a really long time. And he shows that rather than what we might imagine, AI kind of leveling out the biases and making everything fairer in the long run, it actually does exactly the opposite. It kind of compounds it. So it almost works like a stereotype machine. So we know when we watch TV, when we're watching dramas or anything we're watching on TV for that matter, we often see stereotypes, especially in advertising, reflected back at us rather than real life. So for example, I see a lot more male doctors on TV than I do when I go to the hospital, when mm-hmm. I go to surgery. When I go to surgery, it's almost all women. <laughs> yeah. um, but you would never guess that from watching TV. So TV gives us shortcuts, yeah. you know, handy shortcuts based on the stereotypes that we have. Um, and this is essentially what happens with AI, is that in, in summarising, in distilling down, it amplifies the biases that are mm-hmm. already there. And it doesn't reflect society as it really is. The bigger problem, I think, is that we want AI to be better than society really is. We don't want it to reflect the biases. We also don't want it to reflect any biases. We want it to be fair. So in that sense, what we want from AI is something we don't yet have, which is for it to give us a world that doesn't yet exist. And how do we code in a future that doesn't yet exist <laughs> and data that doesn't yet exist for a world that doesn't yet exist. And that's a big challenge. We want, we would like to believe that technology can be bias-free. In fact, it is exactly what we are, which mm-hmm. is full of bias. Yeah. And it's also more a political question than a technical one, right? Because if, yeah, if, if, if we wanted to be something or reflect some future world and what what will that world be what what is fair and what yeah what is unbiased even yeah. like what differences do we make what yeah. we don't yeah I don't know. and we don't all want the same world that's yeah. the sad fact that we're having to confront right now is that there are forces out there who want a very different world from for example the world that I want there are forces out there who want a world without me in it so <laughs> you know where do we go with that Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're in this world. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, last question. What, what is your next book going to be on? Uh, I'm, you know? I was going to start writing another book this year, but I'm going to take a small hiatus to work on this project that I was talking oh, yeah. about. So yeah. this panel of people in, I don't know if it will go anywhere. I'm trying really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping to get some kind of funding. I'm lucky to have already quite a lot of support. Um, and I'm, I just want to get this 
issue scientific disinformation into the political and media agenda. So that's my goal. This was my interview with Angela Saini. If you want to support our journalism at The Correspondent, go to thecorrespondent.com. Thank you for listening.